Today's episode of the Gaucho 9 Podcast brought to you by our friends at Kyle's Kitchen. Check out their website, kyleskitchen.com, to donate to their GoFundMe campaign. And be sure to use the hashtag FeedingKyle'sFriends whenever you make a post about the delicious meal you just had at Kyle's Kitchen. Kyle's Kitchen has already fed over a thousand families, so please visit and eat great food while helping great people. This podcast also brought to you by the Gaucho's social media feeds, UCSB underscore baseball on Instagram and Twitter. This past Friday, so two days ago, was the four-year anniversary of the Sam Cohen walk-off Grand Slam. So we posted a, there's a 20-minute video on Instagram right now that was made by Larissa Graham that recapped the end of 2015 and the entire 2016 season. There's calls, World Series highlights, some great interviews, just a, a lot of good footage from a memorable year. We've already gotten some great responses online, and I've gotten some great responses through text messages and phone calls. So it's uh, it's been fun to hear the feedback. People are excited to, to watch that and relive it, and uh, we're hoping that you are enjoying everything that we're giving out here uh, with UCSB baseball. We miss baseball a lot and trying to keep this going. So today... Michael Young, a great conversation with Bob Bronsma. We talked about his time at UCSB back in 1995, 96, and 97. Talked about the 96 regional, you know, kind of how he developed as a player coming out of high school, his transition on defense, and then his ability to hit and what he learns moving his way up in the big leagues and his successful Hall of Fame career. Uh, a true professional, a true gentleman, and a great interview. Really appreciate having Michael on, and uh, it was a lot of fun to do this. So uh, sit back and enjoy this one. This is Michael Young. It's one of the most beautiful views of any campus in America, the Pacific Ocean crashing against the shores of UC Santa Barbara every morning, noon, and night. Here's the one-strike pitching. Mitchell belts us to deep left. Cabrera is going to watch it fly. He strikes out the side for the second consecutive inning. Armani belts it to deep center. Gauchos are going to Omaha. Can you believe it? Here's the 0-2 pitch. And a curveball is swung on him. And the score is two. Here comes Mitchell. He's going to score. And the Gauchos are the 2019 champions of the Big West. Okay, today on the Gaucho and I podcast, uh, we have two guests. One of them is our first returning guest. Coach Bronsma is here. And then our new guest is, uh, well, he's a Hall of Famer. Let's put it that. He's uh, out of Covina, Bishop Amat High School. He was a gaucho in 95, 96, and 97. Career 346 hitter, 106 runs, 28 doubles, 7 triples, 18 home runs, 103 RBIs in his gaucho career. Single season, among the single season leaders in all-time at-bats, total bases, and runs scored. He was a first-team All-Big West selection in 1997, fifth-round pick of the Toronto Blue Jays, made his debut with the Texas Rangers in September of 2000. He played his first full year in the bigs in 2001, which turned out to be a 14-year big league career. He was All-Star Game MVP in 2006. He was elected to the Ranger Hall of Fame in 2016 and had his number retired in 2019. And he leads that franchise in games played, at-bats, hits, and sacrifice flies. Pretty cool stat, uh, <clears throat> in my opinion. Uh, he won a batting title back in 2005, career 300 hitter, 
2,375 hits, and a seven-time All-Star. Please welcome to the Gaucho 9 Podcast, Michael Young. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Kevin. Good to be here, man. So, yeah, apologize for the long list. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, I appreciate it, man. Um, that kind of Could have been longer. <laughs> yeah, you probably cut some things off. He start going into his off-the-field stuff, and then you exactly. have 10 minutes worth of uh, – I can give you a, about a longer list of negative stuff too, if you want it. But again, we only got like an hour here. It can be. Well, a- I, hey, I, I did. I did some research, and in my research, so being the franchise leader in things like games played and at bats and hits, it means you're also the franchise leader in outs committed, strikeouts, and, and strikeouts and uh, ground in double plays. Oh yeah, that was my specialty, man. Yeah, that, that that should be on any plaque that I'm given. Ground and double plays should be on it. I was that was <laughs> that was my thing. <laughs> But so the other thing is, I mean, like when I'm looking through your Gaucho stats and then your Ranger stats, like, and you're the leaders, you're among the leaders in at-bats, total bases, like those things tell me that you were a consistent baseball player. It means you're out yeah. there every day, you're you're playing multiple positions, and you're getting it done in more ways than one. And growing up, like, I knew who you were, like, I'm an A's fan, so I followed the Rangers, you know, in the, in the AL West, and you were always, you're always the guy that's getting the big hit and being consistent. Is that something that was kind of a, was that a mindset that you had as a ball player in college and in the pro- professional ranks, being consistent? Yeah, I think that my my two goals when I was during my playing career were to were to be healthy and to stay consistent. If I did those two things, then I felt like I, the production would follow, uh, but. Going back to my, my college career, um, you know, games and at bats and those kind of stats are are indicative of a coach who has faith enough in you to put you in the lineup. And I, I thank Bronx for that. And, you know, I was at a very – those were very, very formative years for me, um, both learning how to become a, a, an offensive player and uh, obviously a switching defensive positions where I just needed a rep after rep after rep in order to get better. And, um, you know, I had a ton of bumps in the road. Uh, but coach stuck with me. Uh, gave me opportunities to go out there and, and get better, um, and and I did. And you know, a lot a lot of that is is because Bronx's faith in me, and I, I'll always be very very grateful for that. Yeah, and, and coming out of Bishop Mott High School, so you're Southern California kid, and on the up up and away pod, you mentioned that you played outfield in yeah. high school, and came to college and got moved to the infield, and at least nowadays from my knowledge of college baseball, it usually goes the other way around. Like I have some friends that were exceptional infielders as high schoolers and then moved to the outfield because their offensive skills were elite and maybe there was a better defensive shortstop, you know, also on the team. So that transition, when I heard that, it kind of caught my ear because it's an unusual transition. Yeah, Um, it it is. It is. And, you know, even in my, my current job now, we don't see many guys go from the out. We don't see any guys go from the outfield to the infield. But I did feel like my defensive path was a bit, a bit unique in that sense. Um, even dating back to high school when I was getting recruited as an outfielder um, at UCSB, I kind of had a deep feeling that my thoughts um, with for me were always on getting to the big leagues, being a big leaguer. Uh, it was kind of a, just a singular thought that I've always had. And I, I, deep down, I knew that being an infielder was my best path. Um, so when I got to when I got to UCSB, uh, coach played me in right field, which is where I knew I was going to play. Fine, it was great. Um, I liked playing the outfield, um, especially when you get into college, where it becomes even a, even a more important position at the time. Um, but heading into the summer before my sophomore year, I kind of knew that I wanted to like, switch gears and really start focusing on what I knew would be my clearest path to becoming 
uh, a major leaguer. And even given the fact that I was only, you know, 18 years old, um, that's where my thought process was. Um, at times, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily like, you know, very, a very linear thought process. You know, I was bouncing around a little bit, but um, that's where I was at. And fortunately for me, like, like I said, coach gave me the opportunity my sophomore year to, to play shortstop again, ton of bumps in the road, but I knew that was gonna be my spot. And right when I got, right when I signed in 97 and I got into a ball with the blue Jays, I knew it was the right move. I, I could see right in front of me, uh, the people who, are, who I was competing with, what it took to become an impact middle infielder in, in pro ball and eventually in the big leagues. And um, I could tell right away that I was going to be the right move for me. Okay. So Bob coming out of high school, what did you see from Michael? Cause that was earlier in your early in your coaching career. You you just taken the job, I think a year before you probably recruited Michael. You took it in ninety three. Ninety three, ninety-four. Yeah. You know, so I got the job in you know So he's he's probably one of the, the first guys. First that you recruit. Recruit. He yeah. was my he was the first guy we went after, went in the house, and he was the guy I wanted. So I, I think I saw him at the Erico tryouts in uh, at San Diego State. Uh, the first time and uh, so you know they were on the 60 and you know first of all I liked you know he had that bounce in the step how he kind of walks you kind of look at the athletic portion of it so he goes out and runs a good 60 so you go hey that gotta hope he can hit I hope he can do something else then they go to the right field and they throw and he had a good arm as as anybody he had a unbelievable arm and I went oh my god this guy athletic and run throw gotta hope he can hit well that was that was so i fell in love with the guy i mean you know a little bit how stupid i was back then you know i we had two scholarships maybe a scholarship and a half to to go out and recruit that year we ended up signing i think three people i had no money and instead of just skipping all that and going to the pitching I go out and try to get a, an outfielder. So that kind of tells you how smart I was. Um, and, but I just, it, it was, I just, I just thought he was awesome. I just loved the way he carried himself. You know, the, people say cocky, I'll say confident. Um, there was an attitude when you're trying to do something in Santa Barbara. And one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to try to change, you know, create a little bit more of an edge for our team, a little bit more of a mentality. And so that was really the only thing I had to find out about him was that he had the mentality that we, I was kind of hoping to bring in and try to change the laid back, cool, you know, academic, great school image that we had and because uh, we had always had a lot of really good players uh, but we needed also we needed the guys with a little bit a little bit more baseball first a little bit tougher and then once we went in the house met the family and did all that it was like okay we poured in gave him a great offer and he said no <laughs> no yeah yeah okay so yeah, he was wait well he understandably <laughs> Here's a guy, here's a 17-year-old kid, maybe even 16 at this time. Yeah. He wants to play in the big leagues. Okay? I mean, everyone wants to play in the big leagues, but he wanted to play in the big leagues, right? Uh, so, you know, teams are going to call, right? I mean, SC is going to call. I mean, come on. SC, West Covina, Bishop Amon. It's, I mean, the big schools are going to come in, and they're going to grab up this future big leaguer. So he waited. 
I think. No, no, that's, that's exactly what happened. And, and again, that was probably the first, when I think back in my time at UCSB, I think about it, you know, people talk about it all the time, but you know, how much you learn and grow up a little bit. And that was the case for me. And that was probably the first case where I grew up a little bit. I remember, you know, coach came into the house, very, very you know, happy. That was my first home visit. But yeah, I was waiting for these big schools. I had a scout, I'll never forget, a scout from the Mariners come up to me and he said, you need to sign after your senior year of high school because no one goes to UC Santa Barbara and gets to the big leagues. And I remember like telling my dad, I'm like, you know, if I could have flipped that guy off right there, I would have. Like, don't tell me what's going to happen. Like, I'm going to dictate where I, what happens to me in my life, in my career. And, and that would, but it stuck in my head, you know, as a naive kid. And I'm like, man, maybe, you know, maybe he is right. And I'm sitting here waiting for these big offers, these big schools to come out, you know, thinking in my own head, just a matter of time. So I say no to coach's initial offer in November. And I go out and play my senior year and like halfway through, the only team still calling me is Coach Bronson and UC Santa Barbara. So I'm like, all right, this is clearly a sign. This is where I'm going to go. And I went there, and, and my freshman year, I show up, and um, in my head, I'm, I'm better in my own head than I actually was at the time. And I have zero issue admitting that. I was In my head, I thought I was a really good player. In reality, I had a ton to learn and, and so many ways I had to get better. But I did notice right away that I felt like when it came strictly to baseball, that a lot of guys on that team thought differently about the sport than I did. It was very much like this very casual attitude, um, you know, and where I, where I grew up playing baseball just wasn't that. And the only thing I thought about at that point in my life was my family and baseball. That was it. That, that's the only thing I, I thought about. And I'll never forget my freshman year. We had our first like team meeting. We we're up in the stands. And I remember there was some guy on our team. I, I remember his name, but I won't say. It, and he's kept sticking his finger in my ear. And Coach Bronson's like sitting there right talking. And I remember I, at that point I had one friend on my team who I really liked. His name was Steve Kane. And uh, he, he was just awesome to me from my recruiting trip all the way on up. My freshman, he was sitting next to me. And I said, who's this guy behind me? And he told me his name. And I'm like, if he does that again, I'm, I'm, we're going. Like, I'm tired. I'm already tired of this. So I also had to learn what it meant to be a freshman, what it learned to be humble enough to kind of know your place a little bit and settle into your role. Um, but it, it was very much a laid back atmosphere that um, I just wasn't used to when it came to to being in a baseball environment. Okay, so how, I mean, Bronze mentioned that he wanted to get guys in and, and have this, have a gritty mentality to approach the game and, and change the culture. And, you know, 95 was your, your first full year. And then in 96, you guys have a pretty good team and you wound up going to a regional. So, like, what were some of the things that you did, Michael, that helped kind of change the culture to what Bob wanted it to be? Well, I don't, I don't know if I did. Um, going back to my freshman year, sure enough, yeah, I, I'm thinking really tough on the day the guy's putting his finger in my ear, but when it's time to go play, I wasn't very good. So my freshman year, I wasn't very, I wasn't just a really good baseball player. I was, I wasn't performing on the field in the classroom. I was a zoo. Um, my priorities were just totally screwed up. I had no idea how to manage time, you know, but if you ask me how good a video game player I was, I was freaking awesome that year. So I was just an absolute mess of an 18 year old my freshman year. So Again, you know, getting smacked right in the face with things that I have to get better at as a, a person, as a player. Um, it wasn't like I was tearing the field up and bad in the classroom or the other way around. I was bad at both. So I remember going home after my freshman year and, you know, I thought after your freshman year of college, you're going to go to these really great summer leagues. I was home and no team really would take me. And I'm like, all right, this is clearly a look in the mirror kind of moment for me. And to have it at 18 years old after my freshman year was big. You know, I had an opportunity to really kind of 
come to grips with certain things that I wasn't doing well, certain things that I was. And um, by the time I got back to my sophomore year, um, I was definitely a more focused kid, um, way, way humbled considering what happened to me my freshman year. And I feel like at that point, you know, I was taking on a new challenge of trying to play shortstop and uh, my focus level was just much, much different at that point. But I'm sorry, to answer your initial question, I think it was a lot of the guys around that coach had brought in uh, fit the bill of what he was talking about. Um, and it was, it was a really fun team my, my sophomore year. We had a guy named Lou Tapia who coach brought in the same year I did who played third. And he was the kind of guy coach was talking about. He was a Juco guy from the Valley, played hard, got dirty all the time. Um, and he kind of added another element of that toughness that coach was talking about. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, Lou, Lou ended up being, if there's a trivia question, he ended up being the first guy that signed when I was. Uh, so he, he stole your mantle on that one. <laughs> but you're right. He was, he was a scrapper. Reminds me of the Rendon guy a little bit. Uh, not quite same, but yeah, similar yeah. type, similar type deal. And uh, and yeah, so it, it, we only brought three guys in. Uh, Said we had like a scholarship and a half. We you know back then we had nine scholarships, uh, so we were scrambling to do anything we could. So my you know first recruiting class was small, but it was good and it was important and it did didn't make a difference. Yeah. Well, real quick, remind the kids today what video games you're playing in 1996. <laughs> oh, man. Because um, I'm, I'm kind of curious myself. Yeah. I remember having a Game Boy. <laughs> oh, no, it was like this James Bond kind of uh, uh, deal, and I was hooked. Um, it was bad. The only, thing, the only places I went to were the dorm to eat. Um, I hung out with the baseball team off the field who I probably annoyed 24 seven. And at that point, I think our, our, our cage that was behind or behind center field at the softball, uh, softball field, those are the only places I went to. And I remember literally just, um, trying to go to that cage all the time to try and like tighten myself up. Cause I, again, I was, I was, I was scuffling and, um, I was there a lot. You were so. a freshman, you were a young freshman to boot. So once again, it, you know, the game of baseball is the game of baseball and it, 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 it beats you up uh, and can destroy you unless you're mentally tough, which he was. But, you, but if you don't learn, Mike learned, and you need repetitions in this game. So, you know, a lot of guys don't handle it well. The amount of freshmen, not just baseball players, the amount of freshmen that go to college and then end up bailing is really high. So it takes some perseverance. Freshman years can be really tough uh, for a lot of reasons. You know, I think, I think in addition, I was physically, I was really, really a late bloomer physically. So my freshman year, I was physically way behind the guys I was playing against. And, uh, I, you know, I'd go to the gym a little bit, but our, our facilities at the time, I think the old rec center wasn't even put in yet. And I think my sophomore year was the first year I got put in. And then again, my sophomore year, I kind of started doing things I talk about with like, you know, minor league players. Now I started settling to a bit of a routine. My class schedules were kind of along the same lines every quarter. So I knew I can get to the gym like around eight. And I remember I used to see Bronson there all the time. So I think you taught like a class yeah. like in the morning and I'd yeah. see him in there. He'd be teaching the class and I'd be working out. I would see him in there every single morning and it became kind of my routine. I'd get to have that overly starchy breakfast in the dorms. And I would, you know, uh, or if I was in my apartment, I, whatever the hell I had in there, I'd get to the gym and I'd get going. And, um, again, my sophomore year is when I kind of started to really, um, you know, figured out what it meant to grow up a little bit. Well, so no, strength, no strength and conditioning guy back then. 
Yeah, no. I, don't even, I don't even remember what the weight room was like back then, if we even had yeah. one. It could have been the shack. I don't know. but The shack was my freshman year. Yeah. A yeah. shack? Yeah. It was literally. A literally a shack. Yeah. And it had universal equipment in it. And that We're talking about the four-sided thing that had, you know, it, it, and it was, you had to be committed to get better. Wow. Yeah, because I was, I was just going to ask, like, I mean, it's the mid-90s at UCSB, and it's a little different than it is now. And you talk about the growth of the program, the baseball program. We've, we've kind of covered that in, in the first few podcasts, but also the growth of the athletic department in general. I mean, we've got this great weight room, and we've got a great weight staff, and we've had some awesome directors uh, and assistant strength coaches come through. But can you guys speak towards what it was like in the 90s with – so no cell phones – and like now all of our stuff is, you know, dictated on GCAL and we plan it out ahead of time and everyone's connected on the phone with Slack and Google chat. Like the constant communication is so prevalent as far as, you know, when we're practicing and when we're playing games and wherever everyone is. So coaches can keep tabs on the accountability of the players, you know, to a certain extent, but with no cell phones and no lights and no social media and no weight room in the nineties, I mean, what, Next to no yeah, computers. Is, and, yeah, what is the, the practice environment and, and the, the environment towards getting better like in the 90s? Um, you know, you're right, first of all. Um, I think my sophomore year was when uh, email first came out. Um, I remember that because my, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, who began to become my wife, she was at school in New York, and that was the first year we were able to email each other my sophomore year. Um, so it was, it was different. Um, but at the same time – at the time, you don't know what's different. You're just doing right. what you do, right? So right. we had, you know, our knockout practice time was like shortly, probably after lunchtime, probably similar to what it is now. And, um, you know, every now and then you do a guy on campus and um, that was pretty much it. Uh, you know, I think because of the fact that there wasn't um, any, you know, no technological advances that let you kind of keep in touch with people as much, that led to my, all I, the only people I hung out with were baseball players. So I wish one of my regrets at college was, you know, I didn't ever really jump into campus life the way that a place like UCSB allows you know I just hung out with the baseball team so I mean people ask me now you know when did you go to UCSB I say you know 95 96 97 they're like oh did you know and I'm like no I didn't <laughs> no way I know if, if they were on our baseball team I knew them that, that was the only people that I knew um you should have gone to study hall once in a while at least there was some diversity there I don't know maybe that would have helped there was. a little bit well, I, I would go. I would sign in, and then two hours later, I'd come and sign out. So, yeah, I was definitely there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, was, um, it was a great – it's an unbelievable school, unbelievable place to play. I, have, I've, I thank it endlessly for my development as a player in person, but I wish I could have done more. And like you said, to your point about, you know, not having any way to really connect with people apart from who are, who are around you all the time, that, that made it a little more – you know, made it a little tougher. Okay, so let's talk about the 96 season – going to a regional couple tough teams in that regional, but what and questions that I asked skip and I asked, uh, you know, the guys from 2016, but just kind of the vibe of, of, of 96, like what made you guys click and what made you guys a good team and, and talk about some of the players that you had on that squad. Yeah, we had, um, it was, it was a very close team. You know, my freshman year, we weren't, we weren't that good. We had a lot of really upperclassmen and then we lost a lot of guys in my, uh, after that year heading into my junior year and a couple of guys kind of stepped up and became really good players who we just didn't know we we're going to do that. You know, Brett Hardy became a really good player and he got drafted that year. And we had 
you know, Colin Weitzman came in out of nowhere and became a really good player for us. And Ryan Critcher was a great player for us. And coach mentioned Lou Tapia. I mean, uh, we had that year a big freshman class. Barry Zito was an unbelievable pitcher. So we had a lot of like infusion of talent and guys who approached the game in a way that Bronx was talking about. So it was a really fun group. And as the season started to progress, we had these really big wins over some big programs. We beat Northridge. And that was kind of a – at the time, Northridge was really good. And it was kind of like a light bulb moment for our team to, as far as recognizing what we could do. Uh, we closed the season out. We took two or three at Fullerton. And then uh, we watched the, the selection show for the regionals, and we were the last team they announced. So I think we thought we were, we were cooked. We thought our season was over. And then they, they announce us and the whole restaurant goes bananas. It was fun. And then we get to the regional. And again, it was my sophomore year. I, I swung the bat well. I became a better player, but I was still frustrated. I was playing shortstop, but I, that season frustrated me because I wasn't – at the time, I didn't think I was making the progress I was supposed to be making at shortstop. Looking back, all the, the bumps in the road are part of the progression and part of the, the improvement. But at the time, you just don't see it like that. So I remember we were facing um, Eric Dubose, who was an All-American lefty at Mississippi State. It was a tight game, and I had three hits that game. It felt good, and I made two big errors, and I was just pissed. Like, after the game, I was talking to my folks, and I'm like, I'm so tired of, like, screwing up on defense. Like, I've got to get better. I've got to get better. So it was just one of those moments where, you know, I felt like I did my job offensively, but it was all for nothing because I let us down defensively. And then we lost that game. Uh, again, they did have a good team, but I felt like we should have won that ball game. And then the next day, I think Florida State kind of smoked us. Um, and that was it. You know, two games, gone home. And then, uh, you know, Coach um, uh, Freeman personally set me up to go to Alaska that that, next, that summer. And that really, really helped out. But I look back at 96, that was probably my our, our team-wise and program-wise, that was our most fun year. That was a really, really good group. Yeah, you know, I think anytime you win, uh, but – it's, it was a new feeling, uh, cleaning out kind of what was there, uh, good players, uh, you know, kind of getting your own team in there. Uh, and we had – one of the reasons we were good, first of all, we could really hit. I mean, it's one of the things I think throughout times our, our teams could really hit. And uh, we were a very marginal – Mike – did have his struggles defensively. He wasn't the only one. Uh, Lou Tapia was the best defensive player we had. But, you know, we got, you know, Critcher played in left field. He was a transfer. He was on no scholarship money. Hardy was a kid that we brought in as a walk-on who blossomed into an outstanding player. Weitzman, the model, uh, was, was a recruited walk-on player. You know, David Willis was an outstanding player for us, uh, you know, a potential future Hall of Famer for us. Uh, he was a walk-on player. So when you had so little scholarship, you really need uh, those guys to step up and, and be good, and they were. And we had, you know, Brian Noyes, who uh, was a transfer. He was, a, he was at Dominguez Hills, and he played for the Foresters and just say, I'm going to stay here and play. And I thought, okay, whatever. And he ended up being really good. <laughs> Seth Bean was the, you know, was the big transfer from UCLA who – really help us on the mound and but all, all our bullpen guys were walk-on pieces that were good uh Justin Lear was a freshman that year and he was a you know a really good player and ended up pitching in the big leagues and so it was a it was a hodgepodge of players that could really hit and really compete 
and uh, we did enough to get it. And yeah, I think that Mississippi State game was was a winnable game, uh, but we just ultimately got outmanned. It's like when you have a team that you know is trying to bust down the door, bust down the door. We busted down the door to get into the into the regionals, but unfortunately when we busted the door down we kind of tripped over the door and kind of fell on our face a little bit it's once the door is easy to open it makes things a lot easier you know to to handle that next level and uh you know we were on our way and uh you know unfortunately we hit some bumps in the road real quick on 1997 just going through your stat line mike i mean it looks like you hit your stride you you've, you figured a lot of things out i mean if stellar offensive year one of the better ones that i've seen and also a year in going through the the record book last time a gaucho hit for the cycle was in 1997 it was you against westmont but um still gotta do it also yeah it's still hard to do only 330 to do it in major leagues but you also had barry zito on that staff and i just i want to talk about barry briefly because he pitched for the a's for many years did you ever I'm sure you faced him in inner squads and then you faced him in the big leagues. I mean, I, I love those kind of dynamics where your college teammates, then you face your face each other later on down the road. I've heard some good stories so far. Did you ever have that, uh, that moment in the bigs where, Oh, I'm facing Barry again. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's right. You made a good point. I, th- I thought that Barry came my sophomore. He came my junior year. You're right. And he was, uh, Bron's going to attest to this. He was unbelievable. Like our, my, my junior year. And, that was the first guy I saw from my, my career at UCSB that I'm like, all right, this is like a stopper starting pitching. We had guys like, like Coach mentioned who could compete, who can keep us in ball games and did the best they could, but Barry was like a legit stopper. And I remember after his, his freshman year, um, uh, he transferred. Uh, I think he was getting some pressure from other places to kind of move around and end up at, you know, three schools in three years. But sure enough, you know, he gets to the big leagues quick and um, – he got to the big leagues before I did. And by the time I got there, uh, became an everyday player in 2001, Barry was already a mainstay in Oakland's rotation. And we played a game in September. Matter of fact, I'll never forget this. It was September 10th, 2001. It was the day before 9-11. And Barry had a, uh, a shutout going against us um, into the ninth inning. And we hadn't been shut out. And we, again, my Ranger team at that point was very similar to our UCSB, UCSB teams. Um, yeah. We raked. We just flat out could hit. But, you know, a lot of 10 to 8 ball games with those clubs. And sure enough, Barry is shoving. And uh, um, I hadn't had a chance to really talk to Barry a little bit. Um, but I remember what he had – I got on an air or something like that, and we crossed. They got a third out. So I kind of crossed coming across the field. And I looked at him, and he kind of like went like this at me, and I kind of said something back to him. And then my my uh, I let off the ninth inning and hit a homer off him. And uh, – I looked at the replay after the game, so our shutout streak kind of kept going. And I uh, looked at the replay after the game. The second the ball went out, Barry kind of put his head out and just started laughing. But um, <laughs> Barry just had such an unbelievably great career, especially during his time in Oakland. And we had a chance to talk a lot. Uh, just one of those guys that when you go to UCSB with somebody and, and they ended up doing really well, you're just you know, proud of the fact that you share a similar past. But just a really, really good dude um, who had a hell of a career. But, yeah, we had a ton of at-bats when I was um, – uh, when I first started out against him, I did really, really well. Um, probably my first, you know, 20 at bats against him, and then maybe my next 50 or so, the, t- the tide kind of turned a little bit, and Barry started started chewing me up a bit. But it was always a fun battle. Zito stories yeah. uh, could be a, its own mini series. Yeah. Read a book. Yeah. Read a book with those, man. Yeah. yeah. 
he he was yeah he was fun to have because I was fans of those A's teams, the Moneyball team with Mulder and Hudson and Tejada and Devez, yeah. like all those teams. Like those were my teams growing up. And then it, it was interesting to watch him in San Francisco. So it's it's I didn't know that he went to UCSB until I got here, and I thought that was pretty cool. So yeah, he a cool if you look at Barry. If you look at Barry from the outside, he looked like the guy that Bronx was talking about beforehand right wears board shorts pretty much everywhere flip-flops very chill atmosphere yeah. and then he crossed the line you see a whole different guy man that was when that was really fun for me to play behind it was a, it was a lot of fun yeah and i think if barry had it his way he never would have left ucsb that's a fact that is a fact yeah so yeah. you know i don't i don't hold any grudges to barry how it played out was was pretty weak because he had come back right. i mean I recruited him like five times uh, and, and he came back and then, then left after the, you know, after the winter quarter or the fall quarter, I should say. Right. Start of the winter quarter. But I got, I've got, I, I've got no grudges uh, on Barry. Uh, he uh, was phenomenal for us. And then he was, he pitched like a freshman for us. His numbers are not great, but his, his flashes of brilliance were incredible. Well, and he had the curveball, and I think he had the freshman strikeout record, 123 Ks that year. And yeah, yeah, it's just, I think Special. it was the one by the school record. Uh, yeah. He uh, he back those days, he was all about the radar gun. <laughs> you know, he wanted to throw the next pitch harder than the last pitch. That was his goal, I think. He had the great curveball, but he was all about velocity. Uh, and he was regularly 92, 94, and 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 touched even higher. But it was impressive when he when he had his command. No doubt. Okay, let's transition over to so big league days. So you get picked by the Blue Jays, you get traded to the Rangers, you make your debut, a September call up. I think you played in two games in two thousand. But so first full season two thousand one, and that's an interesting year. You know, it's when Ichiro came in, it's when Pujols came in, and it's at it's at the tail end of the Maguire and Sosa years. Like it's you know, the the league's starting to transition, but was there like a moment early on in those first couple of years, because you, you kind of hit your stride. I mean, maybe not your stride, but you, but you, you were successful those first for you. So were there a couple moments where you got there and you realized that you belong with these guys? Um, you know, for me, I felt like I belonged right away. Um, but I also wasn't anywhere near the player that I knew I could become. Mm-hmm. So my, uh, my first year, my, in 2001, one thing the Blue Jays did when they drafted me is my very first day there, I got drafted as a shortstop and they put me, they said, all right, go to second. So I go to second and they said, all right, because the kid we had a shortstop, his name is Cesar Turris. He ended up spending a lot of time in the big leagues as well. And I mean, he just could flat out pick it. And our, the Blue Jays at the time were unbelievably good at developing middle infielders. And they said, all right, what we're going to do is you guys are just going to switch every series, four games here, four games there, and just keep going back and forth. And at the time, um, obviously I'm, I'm going to do it and, and, work as hard as I can, but I didn't realize the value that would have until later in my career. Um, but sure enough, you know, for second base felt super natural to me right away. I kind of knew that was my natural position and I had never played second before ever. I played outfield and I played short. Um, I still felt much, much better at shortstop at this point than I did when I was in college. So that was starting to progress and uh, get better. But second base was at the time I knew was my best position. So by the time I got to the big leagues, you know, Alex Rodriguez was our shortstop. And so I knew I was going to be playing second. And uh, defensively, I felt great. I'm like, I belong defensively. I have got to make some offensive adjustments to become the player that I want to become. And um, 
you know, I would say my freshman, my, my freshman, my first year was just, uh, you know, pounding away, learning, learning, learning my second year, much of the same. And by the time I got to spring training, my third year in 2003, I really knew that this is going to be my year to really break through. Um, all that learning I had done, all the reps that I had had, every slider that I swung it out of the zone, you know, I felt like I was ready to take off. Mechanically, I felt better. And I'll never forget, one swing in April of 2003, we were facing Boston. They bring in a bullpen guy. At that point, literally, I, my mechanics were so – I had some strengths, but my weaknesses were so big where I really couldn't barrel up off-speed pitches unless I was looking for them. I didn't have the level of adjustability I needed to be a good hitter. I mean, never forget, I lined a – I was looking for a fastball, and I got a slider down, and I lined it in left center field gap and got a triple out of it, and I said, all right, I'm ready now. Like, I didn't, didn't have to sit on it, didn't have to look for it. I'm just ready to cover balls that they throw me. And if, as long as I swing in the zone, I feel like I'm going to take off. And 2003 is my first good year where I felt like, all right, I'm ready to be a, a productive two-way player in this league. Okay, and you had some good managers too. I mean, you played under Buck Showalter, and then you also played under Ron Washington. And mm-hmm. Ron, even though I, I don't have any relationship with Ron, I, I don't know him personally or anything, but my high school teammate was Marcus Simeon. I played with him for four years in high school. And... You know, I saw him transition from high school to college. He was in that category where he played shortstop in high school. Everyone thought he was going to play outfield in college, but he stuck it short at Cal, and he gets drafted. Then he comes to the A's, and he has that first season where he's kicking it everywhere. So the A's bring in Ron Washington and work with him and just completely transform Marcus as a defender. And he's gone on to have a couple excellent years, especially with the glove. Now it's an afterthought, and he's he's hitting the ball like, it's been amazing to watch that transition. And I know Coach Washington, you know, helped lead you guys to the World Series, but you know, what was kinda what was his effect on you? Because I know he's he's probably, you know, a personable guy, you know, and knowing how successful Marcus has become working under Wash, you know, what was he like to play under? Um, I mean, Wash was just a um he was the perfect guy for me at that time in my career. You know, I had a couple different managers my first couple of years. Buck came in. I played for him for four years. Um, he and I butted heads a little bit, but he played me. In four years of Buck, I think I've missed like three games, and two of them were my my son was born. So I mean, he ran ran me out there all the time. I loved it. I loved it. So, but sure enough, we weren't we weren't winning. We were a 500 team every now and then, a couple games over, a couple games under. Uh, we weren't in any position at that point to really pose to be a serious threat to Oakland or Anaheim. So. It was kind of difficult. So Wash came, and I think I was in shoot maybe my seventh year in the league, and I was kind of chomping at the bit for a shot at the postseason. And and I knew Wash because we played Oakland so often. He was a third base coach, and I was playing short. He and I got to rap here and there, and um, I really really liked him. It was a jolt of enthusiasm for our organization. Uh, me as an infielder was great to work for him. Um, it was it was really great. Um, he was our personality as a team really took off under Wash. It was a very much a united group. Um, it was a group that, I mean, if you gave anything less than full effort or and then that didn't follow with production, you got left behind. It's one of those things that that's the fun part of playing for a good team in the big leagues is that once you kind of set some standards that the players get to enforce, and if those aren't met by, say, a new person coming in or an existing player kind of taking his foot off the gas, those guys get left behind. And that's the kind of what Wash brought to our team. Um, it really was just a breath of fresh air. And, you know, I loved it. And I'm not surprised at all. When I saw Marcus Simeon come to the big leagues, his ability was was very, very clear. Um, now, you know, look at him now, and he's going to be a free agent after this upcoming season. And 
30 teams are going to trip over themselves to sign the guy. And I know that Wash had just a massive impact on him um, as a defender. And I'm sure even more than that, um, you know, he's, his, his enthusiasm for the game is infectious. And I think we all benefited from it in Texas. Yeah, those are definitely fun teams to watch. And like, I, I appreciate everything that he's done for Marcus and Marcus being a good friend. So I, I might be jumping around here. I'm, I'm trying to stay chronological, but uh, 2006, because Shane last year and wins the All Star Game MVP, striking out the side in the in the All Star Game, and one of UCSB's claims to fame now is that we have two All Star Game MVPs, only school to have two. And in 2006, you're you're with the American League team, and it's the ninth inning. You're down two one, and you come in to face Trevor Hoffman. And I'm I'm curious if you'd ever faced Hoffman before. And it's all star game. Like it's, I know it's a different environment, but being the competitor that you are, how are you approaching that at bat in the all star game against Trevor Hoffman with your team down two one with two runners on in the ninth? Yeah, it was. Um, it was that was a fun that was a fun game. One we had a uh, Ozzy Guillen was our manager in, in mm-hmm. Chicago, and Ozzy and I for whatever reason had a had a great relationship. I mean, he would literally like. In Chicago, the batting cage is underneath the the home dugout, so you got to cross before the game. You got to cross the field; it's really weird, and you got to almost go through their dugout in order to hit into their into their tunnel. So I'd see Ozzy all the time, and he would talk like openly about wanting to trade for me. It was really it was it was a compliment, but it was also super weird because usually media and his own players were right there. So I'd be like, "Thanks," and I just kind of get out of my way. And then we get to the game, and he's like, "Hey, listen," he goes, "Um, you know." Obviously, Derek was the starter, and uh, he goes, "All right, I'm just gonna sit sit tight and put you in an ninth, and you can win this thing." I'm like, I'll, "You know, it was my third. I think it was my third All Star game." I'm like, I'll, "I'll I'll be ready whenever you need me." So um, I come in and I I got my first at bat, and I flew out to right field, and then we come in for the top of the ninth, and it's it's such a crazy thing because if you're an American League All Star at that point, you know if you have a lead in the ninth inning, Mariano's waiting out there. So we just have to get one, just two guys, one guy pushed across to push the tie, and then two runs across and this game's over. So, um, you know, sure enough, they get uh, Trevor Hoffman's on the mound, Hall of Fame closer, who, like you, to, to your point, I had faced him like a week or two earlier and had a long at-bat, like fouling off change-ups. He's moving his heater in and out. So I kind of had a bit of a mental image before that at-bat even started. Um, but then Paul Canerco comes up and he gets a base hit with two outs. We're still, you know, two outs out. And then Troy Gloss comes up um, – and he gets a pitch and he hits a high ball down the left field line that I knew wasn't going to be caught. But I was like, just a matter of it's going to be a double or a homer. And I remember in my head, I was on deck and I had a perfect angle. And I was like, bounce over, bounce over. Because I knew if it bounced over, Polly's got to stay at third and it's second and third. That's how that's, so you do have this level of selfishness as a, as a competitor, right? I mean, the homer gives us a one-run lead. But I'm like, bounce over, bounce over. Right when it bounced over, like, I shifted gears a little bit and said, all right, this game's ours. So I get into the box and I'm, um, I sit on a change up the first pitch and I foul it off. I get it, foul it off. I sit on fastball the next pitch. I get it and I foul it off. And again, now like my competitive mode is I'm pissed because I just got two pitches to handle and didn't do what I should have done with them. So I kind of remember, I remember stepped out and I was like, all right, my thought process right now is right. My execution sucks. So let's just let him throw the white thing and I'm going to, I'm going to stick it somewhere. So I kind of just chop my head off and use instincts a little bit and, Sure enough, I had his hand. I don't think he wanted to give me a pitch to hit an 0-2 count, but it was a middle-of-the-way fastball, probably about 90, and, you know, got a good swing on it, and that was it, man. Sure enough, Mariano came in and three quick outs, and that was it. 
yeah, that, that was in Pittsburgh, and I, I remember watching that, and it was cool. And <laughs> it, it's amazing. And I know baseball minds are different than other minds. I mean, you talk to or you, you watch, like, Last Dance, you watch LeBron talk about, you know, recounting the last, like, five minutes of a basketball game. But I still find it incredible that that was – and bear with me here, that was 14 years ago, but or 15 years ago, but you still have that recollection that of each pitch and, and the situation and what happened and, and this visualization in your head. And I don't know, I, I think it's pretty special. I and mean, I think it's a reason why, I mean, you were, you did the things that you did, just the ultimate competitor and, and being able to, to step in in those moments and, and do something big, even though it's an exhibition game. And I, I, I love it. I think it's great. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think, I, think, I think the thing to uh, the little hidden message in there is how much he wanted it. There are guys yeah. who are going to get out of here, get out of here on deck. Mike's saying, bounce over, bounce over. So right there, you're dealing with a mentality that is a difference maker, in my opinion, uh, between guys that make it and guys that don't make it or or have more this amount of success as opposed to maybe a little less of success. So that that's that's what I get out of that story is, and that's what I that's what I've always felt about Mike is he had the boxing mentality like bring it on, bring it to me, and I'll take care of it. And that's what he did. So that's what I got out of that story. It's just uh, it's more of his what his personality is. You know, it's interesting. That goes back to, I don't know if you remember this, Bronx, but we used to do this thing when we stretched at UCSB. In my junior year, I was, I was a captain, and it'd be, you know, the three captains would be right here, and then it'd be everybody else would stretch in front of us. And one of our coaches put in this thing where we had to visualize as a team. So we'd stretch, and then we'd like literally like lay like on the ground. Like huh? the other team's probably wondering what we're doing over there. <laughs> we'd lay on the ground and visualize. And I remember at the time, like for the first couple of times, I wouldn't really think about anything. I remember like the first half of my junior year, I wasn't playing – great baseball. I kind of really caught fire right around the halfway point and took that to the end of the year. But I remember I was thinking there and halfway through the year, I'm like, I don't ever get anything out of this. Like I just lay here. Like I should probably start making an effort to get something out of this. So I remember I started thinking about, all right, what do I want to visualize? And this thing popped in my head where like, I, I don't fear messing up on a baseball field. Um, if I screw up today, you know, it's a Friday, Friday afternoon game in Santa Barbara, I'm going to come back and coach is going to put me in lineup for Saturday and I'll have a chance to get them tomorrow. So why am I going to fear anything that hasn't even happened today? So I started having this little mantra like of, um, I, I don't fear messing up on the field. And then it, and it came to like, I just, I just trust myself. I trust myself. And I kept saying that over and over again. It, it just becomes habit forming after a while. And, you know, by the time I, again, by the time I hit the sweet spot of my big league career, it was like a, a mantra of mine. I just, anything that happened on the field, I, I trusted that I can figure it out. Even if it was something that I knew I would, it wouldn't be necessarily be natural or instinctive to me. I just trust that I figure it out. Well, that's cool for you to, for me to hear because over the last nine years since since Coach Chegas has been here, we've done a ton of visualization, and we would do last year same thing. It's Friday afternoon, getting ready to face Fullerton or whatever, and there the Gouches are laying out in the in the outfield with their their hats over their eyes, like looks like they're taking a nap. But it's it's the visualization piece of it, and it's it's led to a lot of success and that's cool to hear from from both your sides like that visualization it's not a new thing it's definitely not a new thing and i know that earlier you you talked about facing barry 
Zito earlier in your career, you had some success in the first 20 at bats and then he kind of gained the upper edge yeah. on, on the other half. So growing up in Bay area, I, I would watch giants games and listen to Mike Kruko talk about pitching. And, and he had this thing called ownership. I know it's, it's, it's a baseball term where it's, you know, pitcher dominates a hitter or, or vice versa. <laughs> Did you have any pitchers that you love facing, and were there any pitchers that dominated you no matter what? Oh, man. Um, yeah, there were a lot of pitchers I liked facing. Um, I'm not really sure, honestly, like how the numbers played out. Um, you know, it's weird. I think that I faced the most at-bats I probably had against a guy as, as John Lackey because I faced him all the time when he was in Anaheim. And the numbers might say that I did okay against him, but I remember him just being a handful of an at-bat. So it's really weird to look at the numbers. I used to kind of just go by feel. Mm -hmm. um Pedro Martinez was a, a guy I did not feel great against at all I remember I'll never forget my first at bat against him we were playing the Red Sox my rookie year and um I was having a good game and Pedro was starting the, the following day and uh Rafael Palmeiro comes up to me he's like hey man you're swinging a good today and I was like yeah thanks he goes we'll see tomorrow because <laughs> tomorrow so uh sure enough you know I uh come out the next day I'm hitting you know eighth or ninth whatever I was my rookie year and I usually get out to the dugout pretty early, like 6.30, I'd be out in the dugout. So sure enough, this guy pops out of the, of the Red Sox dugout and the crowd goes, and you, the Red Sox fans and Yankee fans and Cubs fans and Dodger fans, they travel. You know, they're, so they're, they're pretty loud even in our home ballpark. And we were playing in Texas. And right away, this dude pops out of their dugout and, he has, and the crowd goes nuts. I remember I was talking, one, one of my teammates, I'm like, there's no way that's Pedro Martinez because he looked like the Bat Boy with a uniform on. I'm like, there's no way that's him. And they're like, that's him, man. So... I'm like, all of a sudden, my confidence shoots through the roof. I'm like, oh, this guy is tiny. Not like I'm like, the, not like I'm Mark McGuire out there, right? But so my my first at bat, um, Pedro throws me a, a fastball in the inside corner. I turn on it and yank it down the left field line. And usually in the big leagues, when that happens, you sit off speed. They're not going back in there, right? So I'm like, all right. Everyone knows Pedro's got that really good breaking ball and change ups off the charts. So I'm like, all right. I kind of set my eyes kind of out over the plate a little bit. And the next pitch just right, right up there. Classic Pedro Martinez. So I go down. Next pitch, I'm like, all right, now I'm really gonna sit out there. Two in a row. So Pedro sure enough gets to a full count, throws a change up about 40 feet, and I take a full hack at this thing. Like didn't see anything, right? So uh, my next at bat, I actually hit. So I get like right away. This is Pedro Martinez. And my next at bat, I hit a homer off him. You know, first start against Pedro Martinez. I remember I made contact. And it's funny how aware you have to be during a game. I've made contact and right away I put my head down and I got going. Like just knew it was gone, put my head down, got around the bases, got back in our dugout, um, which was kind of the standard thing for me. But I knew I was facing Pedro Martinez. I knew I was a rookie. So a week later, we have a series in, in Boston, first time in Boston. And there at the time, their um, clubhouse weight room was tiny. So I get in there like around noon and Pedro Martinez is in there. So I go to the other side of that weight room just to kind of stay out of his way. And all of a sudden I feel this dude kind of walking over and I was like, oh, shit. so sure enough, he's like, Hey Mike. And I was like, what's up? And he goes, Hey, just wanted to say hi. Nice to meet you. He goes, you're doing great. And I was like, wow, thank you very much. You know, uh, that really does mean a lot. And he goes, yeah, you hit that Homer off me. Um, I noticed you dropped your head right away and got around the bases. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, that was a good move. And he just turned around <laughs> and walked <away. laughs> And ever since then, me and Pedro had a great relationship. Every time I saw him, it was, you know, handshakes and hugs and saying hello. And the yeah, at-bats were always a beast, man, always a handful. But I'll never forget that moment. It was pretty cool. 
Wow. Yeah. Mutual respect. It goes a long way. Yeah. That's excellent. No okay. So you, so you mentioned Rafael Palmero. You got to play with a lot of great hitters. A-Rod, Adrian Beltre, Josh Hamilton, Vladimir Guerrero, Mark Teixeira, Sammy Sosa, to name a few. Right. Was there was any of those guys kind of rub off on you as far as the offensive side of things? I mean, you've always been able to hit the baseball. Was there someone who you who you learned a few things from in particular? Um, interesting. Uh, you know, we did we did have a ton a ton of great great players, position players in my time here in Texas. So as far as approach was concerned, I've watched Pudge a lot my first years because he and I really stayed inside the ball, used the whole field. I would say our target zones are kind of like left center to the right field line. So he and I were very similar, but um, so I'd watch how he, his natural bat path was very similar to mine, obviously production wise, especially early in my career, there wasn't really a comparison, but I, I really tried to kind of focus on what he did at the plate. Um, Alex was just a monster in those three years I played with him. I think the biggest thing I took from him wasn't necessarily the, the, um, the production or how he did it short or anything else. It was the fact that I think in three game, three years, he missed one game. And that's one thing I really took with me from a lot of the guys I played with was I felt like I had a level of, um, you know, I owed it to my teammates and to my manager and coaching staff that they could depend on me. So I was going to be out there every single day. Um, never really, never asked for a day off. Um, I tried to fight them every time they gave one to me, even though it was probably a good idea when they, when they did. Um, I wanted them to know that they could count on me. And that was probably the biggest thing I took from a lot of my teammates was, you know, just having that level of accountability that I knew that they can, they can really depend on me. Okay, and I want to get to this before it, it leaves my mind, but 2011, you're facing the Cardinals in the World Series, and you're facing Skip, and Skip might have mentioned this in, in our pod. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, but... he, he might have. Yeah, he might have mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> and, then he, and then he also told a story about when you guys were briefly teammates with the Dodgers Yeah, and what he did with the ring. But can you yeah. really quickly go through your relationship with Skip? Um, I love Skip. I love Skip Schumacher. Um, he is such a, just a good dude. Um, you know, when we got to know each other a little bit over the years, you know, not very much, we would text each other because we were both from UCSB. Just like I tried to stay in touch with all the guys who, you know, are from that program. I remember, you know, you know, texting Chris Vileka when he got to the big leagues and, you know, all these guys from Spilly to Skip and now you make, keep it in touch with Shane to, you know, wish him luck on if he's starting this incredible career. So it's a really, really cool fraternity um, that we're in, but, yeah, you know, it was that, that 2011 World Series, as painful as it is for if you were on our side, it was just a hell of a slugfest. And looking back, I mean, just a, an honor to be a part of it. Would have loved for the result to be a little different, but that's sports at the highest level. You know, sometimes that stuff, that stuff happens, and especially in baseball, where there's so many different weird little unique outcomes that can come from small things. Um, but, yeah, you know, I got traded to the Dodgers after 2000, 2013, the trade deadline, I go to L.A., and they were in Colorado and I'm sitting there just like trying on all this because all my stuff with the Phillies was red. So I'm trying on all these blue cleats and blue stuff everywhere. And um, sure enough, Skip and Nick Punto at the time, who was also with the Cardinals, came and just dropped these like boulder sized rings like right on my foot. And um, it took me every last. Oh, my God. I was laughing. I was laughing on the outside, but in the inside, I was still kind of like boiling a little bit. But. Because it was Skip and knowing how he is, it was just um, when I played with that guy, it was just nonstop back and forth. Uh, check egos at the door because we're going to just – the banter just kind of crosses the lines a lot of time. But that's just – that's the fun part about relationship. And the Padres are a really lucky organization to have Skip right now. I mean, he's if he wants to, he can be a fantastic big league manager. He's just a really, really good dude. Had a hell of a career. Um, you know, players and opponents alike, someone that they really, really respected for how he did it. 
bounced all over the field, gave his manager options, played on winning teams. Um, just a great guy um, that I'm really, really happy to, to call a friend. And another Nick Punto name drop on the Gaucho Nine pod, the Shredder, as we the learned uh, last week. <laughs> yeah, the Shredder. You uh, get a walk-off hit and he rips your jersey off. That was, that was his thing. Uh, Still hate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... Bronze, I, I kept you on because you know for a reason. You're here for a reason, and it's good to know. 2016 was a great year for many many things. First and foremost, it was the first time I ever hit a hole in one. It was in 2016, so that was that was good. But also, the, the Gauchos go to the College World Series, and Mike Young gets elected to the Ranger Hall of Fame. And Bob, you got to go out to the induction ceremony at the the old ballpark. We'll get to the new ballpark later, but can you guys speak towards that moment? And I mean, I, I don't really know where to start. I mean, it's a, it's an honor of course, and a special moment for Michael and also a special moment for Bob, just being the first guy that you recruited to college. Listen, um, just pride. You, you have pride. Uh, and everyone that comes to your program, you, you, you have some kind of connection to, uh, not all of it, is great all the times, you know, some you coach the heck out of it and you do everything you can. And some kids get it. Some kids don't, some kids, you know, appreciate it. it, it but when, when someone goes on and does great things, you, you feel a sense of pride. Uh, being able to be there uh, was, was great for me. Uh, I, you know, I knew Mike when he was, a 16 year old who you couldn't understand him because he uh, talked faster than a motorboat to a guy who's turned into an incredible, uh, well-respected on the field and off the field. The things that Michael has done off the field match what he's done on the field. And that makes him a great person. The fact that I'm in the story is, is awesome. Uh, it's a well-deserved honor, and it's and it's for all sorts of reasons, not just baseball. Uh, these guys that attain the success that Michael's attained have an enormous amount of love for community, love for family, uh, love for the their own organization, and to be just to be there was an incredible honor for me. Just to just to see how much love was out there for him. And it was, it was, it was a, a, a great honor for me. Well, yeah. And a sold out crowd, standing ovation. I mean, can you briefly speak about the moment, Mike? It really was an incredible weekend. Um, I had a lot of my family and friends coming down from California and um, the Rangers did a really, really great job um, of putting on a, on, on a good show. Uh, we had a little, you know, party the night before, a party the night night after. We kind of made a weekend out of it, and you know, I, I really did want I wanted Bronze to be there. You know, he was a big part of the part of the story. And when you have like, you know, when he came out, when you have your number retired, it's it's something where you think about not just the time that I had in Texas, but everything that led up to it. And my time at UCSB was again, it was such an important time for me. It really was kind of um, um, right smack in the middle of the path, and and it meant something to me. It really matters to me, and. You know, I'm very fortunate 
because I got to stay for, for in one place for such a long period of time. I never would have envisioned staying in Texas for so many years. I didn't think that was going to happen. And, you know, for the team and the organization and our fan base to really, you know, put that weekend on and give me that honor meant a lot. And to have coach there really, really was, uh, it was meant a lot to me. I wanted everyone there who would, who had been a part of the, been a part of my career and been a part of, um, uh, you know, making me a better player. And, you know, it was, like I said, it was a really big honor for me to have him there. It wouldn't have been the same if he wouldn't. And um, it was a really, really cool time. I think Bob really liked it because he got to go on the, the telecast pregame, pregame show, <laughs> sit at a, a booth with uh, in front of a camera. I think he really liked that. <laughs> I have okay, no so comment on that. That was fun, though. I got to tell you, I didn't know if I was going to freeze up or what, but uh, – Apparently, I think I just talked for like they, they had 70 questions for me, and I think they only asked three. So uh, they said, Get this it's your guy new off. Calling. It's we your new have, calling, Bob. We don't have any more time. <laughs> okay, and then so also in 2016, the Gauchos go to Omaha, and, and, and Michael, you came out. And what was it like watching the, the Gauchos play in the College World Series? Uh, it, was, it was awesome. Um, you know, I went to uh we'd be going to a little bar the day of the first game they had and hadn't seen all those guys that had I didn't see many guys um that I knew from my time there actually but there was a, a bunch of faces that I knew from before my time that were over the right field fence my freshman year I saw a bunch of those faces uh in similar form in similar form by the way so <laughs> easily recognizable um but it, it was it was awesome again there's just a lot of pride you know uh I think UCSB is a really really special place and so, you know, to have those, I was happy for the kids. The game, the game's always kind of about the, about, about the players and to see those kids go out there and have that good time and have that game against Louisville to get them there. And um, I just wanted to be there to show support for those kids and, and for the school and for the, uh, for the entire baseball program. It, um, it was an incredible game. Shane threw a great game. Uh, the kid from, the kid from Oklahoma state was on point. I was glad they got a, honestly, for me, like I was really glad I would love to have seen him win the college world series, but you know, when they bounced back and got that one win, I think it was against Miami. Um, I was glad they got a win there because they were they were there. They did a good job when they got there. They got some stuff done while they were there. They didn't just, just kind of go to get to the party and, and bounce. You know, they got there and they did some work, and that was cool to see. Yeah, it was a special experience for me, and it was great to share it with with all the gauchos that were there. And there were, you know, ones before our era, and when ones that were there when I was students. Like it was it was it was really special. Okay, so after your playing career, I mean, you you had a lot of success, and and you're and you're giving back in in more ways than one. Uh, first and f first of all, you're, you're giving back to the Rangers. You're working in in the Ranger organization. You're also involved heavily involved in the community and some charity organizations. What motivated you to stay on with the Rangers and and stay in professional ball? And and throughout your career, you were always involved in the community. But can you speak towards uh, that sort of stuff as well? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I didn't, again, I didn't think I'd be in Texas that long. Um, you know, when I signed, I basically signed two five-year contracts there. So my first one was, you know, before I was a free agent. So it made sense for me to kind of knock out my arb years and, you know, have a little bit of stability, but sure enough, I didn't think that considering we're, again, we were about a 500 team and I didn't think that, you know, as this time is playing out, I'm, I'm enjoying my time in Texas. Um, but I didn't know what we'd have, you know, and I knew that the angels were always good. I knew the idea of playing for the Dodgers was something that was appealing for me. The idea of going out East was appealing to me. And all of a sudden we got wash and I really felt that thing change. And uh, I signed my next five-year deal. Uh, the second that we got wash on board, I felt like that was going to be a, a game changer for us. 
Um, so yeah, I, I ended up staying longer than I, than I really thought I would. So the idea, I started kind of obviously developing a lot of relationships here in Texas. And um, one thing about me is that a lot of players start thinking about what they want to do post-career during their career. I never did. Uh, I kind of felt like if I was spending time in anything post-career, I felt like that the guys I was playing against would just destroy me on the field. So I felt like I had to really stay focused on the task at hand in order to make myself a better player and to um, stay productive at that level. So once, um, you know, I retired, I was like, all right, I don't even want to think about baseball right now. Um, I want to travel. I want to spend time with my family and I want to hang out. And I want to, I want to do that for a couple of years before I decide what to do. And sure enough, I ended up taking a front office job with the Rangers less than a year later. It's just baseball is just, it's, it's too big a part of my life. And I, I really love the opportunity to, to talk about it, to try and improve it, to try and improve our organization. And the organs that the franchise here, the, the front office uh, specifically really is good about letting, letting me have a big voice with the team, but also giving me the flexibility I need to spend time with my family, spend time with my wife and my boys and make sure that we get good family time. So it's really the perfect combination. Um, as far as the community stuff is concerned, I really felt like you know, that was my obligation. Uh, when you play for one spot for so long, the last thing you want to do is constantly be in take mode. Uh, there's got to be a give and take for everything. And I felt like I owed them my part for them to come to our, to our games and to cheer and to make noise and to be uh, to have front row seats for our World Series runs. You know, my way to give back is to make sure that they know that I, I don't take that for granted. And I value being a part of the community and being their neighbor, being their friend, doing whatever I can to, to make sure that the, uh, the place they live in is a, it can, can be a little better. And if I can find a way to, to do that, then uh, that obviously brings me a, a great deal of joy to be able to do that. Okay, and this new ballpark that is supposed to be opening this summer, hopefully it does. Yeah. Do you have any involvement in, in the development of it? Yeah, so we'd have meetings about, um, you know, putting together, you know, clubhouse stuff. Uh, and, and they'd ask me to be in there to kind of give my two cents. I was floored. Every time they made a presentation, this, the group they hired to do this just nailed everything. I honestly can't think of one thing where I thought, I need to add this. I mean, they were on top of everything. It was, it's insane. I mean, the, they were like, oh, yeah, this is going to be where our sleep pods are going to be. And I was like, sleep pods? We have, I mean, what? yeah, they have sleep pods in there. It like, gives them like 100% pure oxygen so they can get a little bit of a rest. I mean, they have everything in there. It's it's crazy. I mean, there's going to be guys who are probably going to be paying rent there at some point. They're just, it's, it's a beautiful place. Uh, it's the biggest clubhouse in, in Major League Baseball now. Um, I think it passed the Yankees home clubhouse. So it's, a, it's, it's incredible. Um, if you're a baseball player and one thing about with, the, with our franchise, there are certain things that I think other teams have built in advantages, right? The Dodgers have Dodger Stadium and the ocean right there. The Angels have that beautiful Orange County weather. The teams back East have the history and the tradition. And, you know, for us, we're trying to, find what we want to be about. How can we separate ourselves? And, you know, one thing I always tell, tell our, our team is, you know, it's kind of like the San Antonio Spurs. It's like when you think about the Lakers, it's special and the Celtics, even though I hate them, it's special. Like, but the Spurs, like they do basketball and every player knows it. They do basketball and they do it well. I want our thing to be the same thing. We do baseball here and we do it really, really well. We take care of our players. We take care of their families. And if you want to play winning baseball, we can come accomplish that here and do it together. So, it's a, it's a pretty cool place. It's a cool place to play, a cool place to live. And, um, you know, our new ballpark's really going to, I think, you know, awaken the sleeping giant here. I think we're going to turn to this, the perennial, perennial contender that we know we can be for a long, long stretch. And you're going to do it with turf. Do it with turf. Yeah, turf, yeah, yeah. 
turf. I mean, and, I and everyone, everyone, roof. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we can in the summer months here. It's a no-brainer. You got to close that thing. It's just too hot. Um, the turf nowadays is much, much better. I think in a perfect world, everybody would prefer grass. But uh, given the fact that uh, our stadium is like, you know, every ballpark is below street level at least a little bit. Ours is like 50 feet below street level. It's it's down there. So when the roof roof is even open, there are certain parts of our field that won't be able to get sun. So it just makes it impossible to have grass and. A lot of retractable roof stadiums that have grass, you can't really tell from from the stands, or certainly not on TV. But they have green spray paint over all their dead sections of grass all over the field. So we just didn't feel like that was worth it. We'd rather have like really, really state of the art turf rather than have you know bad grass. Did you ever play on astroturf, the old yeah. carpet? Yeah, it sucks. It, I mean, I played a uh, Toronto the Metrodome yeah. turf. The Metrodome turf back in the day was just. It would rip your body to shreds. I don't know how that guy like Tory Hunter, who was diving all over the field mm-hmm. and slamming into walls, I don't know how he did it. Um, but I remember diving for the first ball in the Metrodome, and I literally felt like my jaw rattled the second I hit the hit the ground. And I got up, and um, a lot of the veteran guys were just smiling at me. They're like, "This is what it's like here." And uh, I'm like, "God, this place is awful." But it was great to hit in, so it all equaled out. <laughs> okay, couple more things to finish up. Um, a couple of questions that I want to ask, and I want to bring Bob in at the end too, just to wrap things up. But I asked this question to Skip, and he gave me just the stone cold no. And it was a sentimental moment, either like pregame or postgame, or when you go to a certain ballpark. And you mentioned it earlier how you know you like the ballparks and you have this admiration for them. And maybe not a sentimental moment, maybe not a specific moment that I want you to remember, but like maybe a favorite ballpark that you love going to either it's great to hit in like the batter's eye is perfect and you can see the ball out of the hand easily or just the ambiance, the fans, or just kind of the whole package. Yeah. Uh, man, old Yankee stadium was my favorite. Um, their backdrop there was basically just a bunch of old seats that they just painted straight black. And I just saw the ball so great there. I remember thinking like, I didn't have many moments in my career where I, a lot of players talk about kind of stop, smell the roses, and appreciate where you're at. Again, I, I never – I probably should have, but I never did. I felt like the second I hit the pause button here, there's going to be guys waiting to just crush me out here. So I have to make sure I stay focused. At least that was my thought at the time. But I remember, like, being in the old Yankee Stadium, that was, like, one of the very few times in my career where I'd be like, I'm going to appreciate where I'm at right now, uh, especially, like, day games. It's just classic baseball. Um, I saw the ball well there. It's always playing against good teams, so it's a competitive environment. Um, it was 55,000 and at that place, man, like the stadium used to go like straight up. Right. So like you're in the, you know, playing defense and I'd be playing short there and like you feel the crowd is like right on top of you. And it was the coolest thing, man. And, um, so I missed that place. It was a cool ballpark. Uh, I love playing there. Boston was a cool place too, but I hit like crap there. So I don't think of it as fondly as old Yankee stadium. Those are my two favorites for sure. Um, you know, I, Again, I try not to get too wrapped up in the nostalgia at the time, but I did recognize, have a you know big recognition of where I was and where I was playing, and you know how special competing and playing baseball at the highest level was to me. Okay, and Bob. So, how have you two guys stayed in touch over the years, and you know where's your relationship at as far as you know the, the Gaucho program, and all, both of you guys have contributed so much and are, are still contributing every year, and like. Where do you see the future of the program going just as a, a group of gauchos? Well, you know, I'm not contrary to what people might think of me. I am a, a loner. I don't, I, 
I could sit in my house with my family for the rest of my life and be happy. So I'm not the type of guy that goes out there and reaches out and is touchy feely. Uh, now saying that I really love most of my players. I mean, I really do. And I care deeply about them. Uh, but I don't, I never really called out to Mike. And, and like I said, it wasn't, wasn't as easy as it is today to just, hey, drop a text message, say, hey, boom, boom. Um, and so I didn't overly stay in touch with, with Mike uh, that much throughout time. Uh, you know, I would be the typical idiot and I would call for a ticket every now and then and feel embarrassed by it. Anytime I've reached out to Mike, he has answered the call and helped out and and usually it revolved around my son uh i am i am a family person first and foremost 100 percent. and quite frankly my players are an extension of my family whether they like it or believe it or want me even involved in their life uh that's the case so when i reach out to mike he responds and and speaks to my son, has advice my son. My son looks up to Mike because he was he wasn't around he wasn't aware when Mike was a player of mine. He wasn't even born, I think, when Mike was playing for me. Uh, I guess he was. But so but he followed Mike's career and patterned his game, loves him, and and so when you have your son who looks up to somebody and that that person gives your son feedback and love and, and it's, it's emotional. It's meaningful. It's, it's as meaningful as anything. Uh, and he has always done that. Same with, same with Skip. And, and so, you know, for that, I owe Michael a debt of gratitude. Uh, he has been a role model and a great person for, my son to look up to and there aren't that many people out there like that so i have an incredible amount of respect for mike not just because he went on and was you know an mvp uh the all-star game a batting champion and you know a roberto clemente award winner all those things are great uh he is an a-plus person for that if i'm even mentioning the same breath as him it's it's a it's a compliment Appreciate that, Coach. It means a lot. Um, Honest. Yeah, I think I, I'm in a very fortunate place where, you know, I think as a person, they, when your career goes by or when, even in post-career, it doesn't really matter. You just kind of – I like to think I'm just an extension of the people I've been around for my entire life. And I try to, especially during the – you know, my, my career is over, I just try and simplify things as much as I can and, and control my environment and be around people that I want to be around and keep in touch with people who I want to keep in touch with. And um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, during my career, I think that was the case with pretty much everybody that I knew again, that I, that I, I kept in touch with my family, of course, my brother, my sister, but there were people that meant a lot to me that I didn't get a chance to talk to very often just because I was, you know, doing out doing, doing what I did. Uh, I, I remember, you know, there are times I'd be sitting like on a Tuesday night, fifth inning in Detroit and I'm playing defense and I'm like, yeah, I wonder what this guy's up to right now. I'm here. Like, and that was the case for a big portion of my life. You know, I was in a suitcase bouncing around from place to place. 
loved it. And there was zero regrets. I had a great time, but you know, there were a lot of people who meant a lot to me that I didn't get a chance to talk to on a regular basis just because my schedule was super hectic. So even though coach and I maybe weren't talking every single day or, or anything close to that it still meant a lot to me. And I, I always uh, appreciated, you know, the role that he had in my life. And I knew that as time went on, we would, you know, we'd stay connected. Yeah. It, it's one of those things that I've learned over the years where you have this certain connection with someone. And even if you don't speak for X amount of time, like the next time you're together, it's, it's like old times and it's like no years have passed and you connect and, I feel like that exists in the baseball community more than more than ever. And I think it's, it's something that makes this, that this thing happens It it, this podcast particular, it's, it's what makes the Gaucho program go around and, and the baseball community go around. And I'm, I'm hoping to see baseball this summer. Uh, I really am. We all are. And hope to see good baseball in the future on the, on the Gaucho field and in that new ballpark in Texas and Bob and Mike, I really appreciate the time this morning. This was a blast and, I mean, I think we covered some great stuff and hopefully we'll do it again in the future. You got it. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Good to see you guys. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thank you to our sponsor, Kyle's Kitchen. And thank you to our guests, Bob Bronsma and Michael Young. I really hope you guys enjoyed that. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that Michael was a two-time Marvin Miller Man of the Year Award winner in Major League Baseball. He won it in 2008 and 2011, one of only four players to win the award multiple times, along with Curtis Granderson, John Smoltz, and Jim Tomey. Michael Young has been heavily involved in charitable organizations and uh, heavily involved in in the Hispanic community as well. He began his involvement with Wipeout Kids Cancer back in 2002. He actively contributed to the Buses for Baseball, an action team program in Major League Baseball while he was playing. And in 2010, he helped found the Michael Young Family Hispanic Scholarship Program to award Hispanic students college scholarships. And in 2011, he founded the Michael Young Family Foundation. So uh, safe to say his contributions off the field equaled and probably exceeded his contributions on the field en route to being elected into the Ranger Hall of Fame. So uh, that'll do it for this week's pod. We'll be back on Wednesday with Andy Graham, one of the great alums uh, for the Gauchos. And he's uh, now a businessman himself and doing very well in the Southern California area. So we'll hear from Andy Graham on Wednesday. Continue to be socially aware. Keep your distance. Be smart. Have fun out there. Keep listening. Follow. Subscribe. Rate review, do all that you can. And uh, we'll talk to you during the week. See you Wednesday.